Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Today I'd like to welcome to the Morning Glory Project Anita Gail Jones. Anita is an author. She has an upcoming book that is working on getting published right now in the hands of an agent called Peach Seed Monkey. But what I'm here to talk with Anita mostly about is that she is a founder of something that is called the Peach Corps, <laughs> as opposed to the Peace Corps. And Anita, with others that she'll explain, was a big part of mobilizing a grassroots effort in the 2020 Georgia election runoff for the senators that we now know that we have in Georgia. And I want to chat with her about that as well. But really what Anita brings to the table also was learned during a period of loss. And as you know, on the Morning Glory Project, that's something that we probe. Where do people get their inspiration? Where do they get their fortitude? And that's what we want to talk to Anita about today. Anita Jones, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Welcome. Thank you. It's my pleasure to join you, Betsy. And I'm going to start this interview in a very odd place. At the time of this recording, it is 1 p.m. Pacific time on April the 20th. And just before coming on, we learned that the Derek Chauvin murder trial of George Floyd has been going on for weeks and that the jury, even as we record this, has just announced that they have reached a verdict and we don't yet know what it is. And it just seemed so timely, given that I was going to be talking with you today. Probably when we finish this conversation, we'll each go and check what the verdict is. Can you tell me what that's like for you, particularly because mobilizing the African-American vote, particularly in Georgia, and mobilizing people to vote on behalf of representation was a big part of your world. Can you tell me what you're, what you're sitting with at this moment? A lot. It's, um, there is this, it encompasses so much that, that, uh, intersects in different points of my life because my novel is about, my novel centers around the lives of black men in the South. And because this is audio only, I want to let people know, of course, that you're African-American and, and that you bring that to the story as well. Right. So I, I started my novel with a question, and that was, how did, did men like my father, who was born in 1921 in the South, in Georgia, how did men like him become leaders in their homes, in, on their jobs, in their churches, maybe not so much on their jobs, actually, 
but in their churches, in their communities, and in their homes? How did they become leaders when at the same time they stepped out onto the streets of the South and they were considered less than men? Less than human. Less than human, exactly. Less than human. So I started with that question and and it was an exploration in writing the novel because my dad passed away in 99. So he was already gone and couldn't talk to him about these things. But I explored the idea. And what I learned is that they became they became heroes by taking very small steps that made them great. Can you tell me what you mean by that? Well, just in their homes, for example, they 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 were not it was there was no question as as to who was in charge. They were in charge in their in their homes, inside of their homes and in church. And these seemed like, you know, one step at a time. What they weren't grand, grandiose actions that they took. They were just every day showing up, showing up for, for what they believed in and what they knew to be right. And so when I see what's going on today, and I know the stories that I heard from my father growing up of what he went through in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s in the South, there's almost nowhere to put it. It's so devastating to think about how this stuff is still continuing. It's, it's still going on. Black men are being lynched. And now it's a public affair. And now it's filmed. And now it's on YouTube. And it, I don't even know where to put it. I tell you the truth. It's, it's so devastating. And yet we also look at the strength and the fortitude that those men had, men like my dad, and then we know this is how you carry on. You 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 find a way. As I listen to you, Anita, I you know I'm Caucasian, and there have been parts of my life that have been very very hard, but none of them have been because of the color of my skin. And I heard somebody say on the TV the other day, "To be black in America is exhausting." Hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and I thought that was such a, a poignant way to put that. Yes. That to exhausting. be right now, it's got to be just, I can only imagine how exhausting that is. Yes. And there, there's a saying from the, from the black community. I don't know where I heard this first. It was to be sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm-hmm. That's an expression used in, in, uh, 12-step recovery programs. Oh, is it? No, I don't know where it originated, but they use it there too. Sick and tired of being sick and tired. And then the other one is um, being black is an inconvenience <laughs> of her, but it is definitely exhausting. But, you know, it, it, it becomes exhausting to be human at, at a certain point and having to, to carry what we're doing to each other as humans and what has been done as humans and and I know that I know that the color the color issue is huge but also it is an issue of just humanity well it's been the, the last 5 years particularly you know as this slice of history that I'm living through at this point mm-hmm. it's been exhausting for all of us yeah for because of the role of women because of 
so much of what we've seen going on in our country and then add on top of it the issue of race is is just another whole matter. So I always wonder, and, and the whole purpose of this conversation, these conversations that I have as part of the Morning Glory Project is how do we get through? And in yours and my conversation that preceded this one, you told me the story about your family in the 90s and the things that you you endured during that time. Mm-hmm. And it seems that those are the seeds of what are what might be helping you to endure today. Can you tell us the story of what, of your family during the night from, from it was what about 91 to 99 then? Nine, yes. 92 to 99, a seven year period where I, I lost my mother, father and sister, what mother, sister and father in that order in a seven year period. My mother died in 92 complications with pneumonia, my sister in 97 in a plane crash and my dad in 99 Uh, partly of a broken heart, I'm sure, at losing his wife and his daughter. But it was a a heart condition that took him. And right there in the middle of the decade, my daughter, our daughter was born in 94. So I was, I was um, replenished with her birth, but it was a devastating decade. And that's your entire immediate family. Yeah, that's, that's my, that was my everyday family. I have another sister, Mildred, uh, but Betty and Silas and Irene, my parents, were my everyday. And um, as I stood by my mother's deathbed, she was the first to go in 92. She was only 66 years old, um, the age that I am now. And I, I remember standing by her bed because by the time I got to Cal- from California to Georgia, she was heavily sedated and I didn't have a chance to speak with her again before she died. And it was a very quick thing. Perhaps she got sick on a Wednesday. She was dead by that following Tuesday, early morning. And I remember stand, standing there and thinking, this is as hard as it gets. There are many things that are as hard as this, but I can't imagine anything harder than having to watch your mother die and standing there by her bed, deathbed, knowing that this is it. This is goodbye. And there was an odd kind of strength in the moment because I knew that it was as if she was saying to me, if you can make it through this and you will, you can make it through a lot. And I did. And it was because of her, because of how she had modeled going through that. She had lost her mother. I had watched her lose her mother when I was 13. And I had watched her lose other people in our family and so I had learned that, yes, you, you do carry on. You, you figure out a way to carry on. You make a decision. Am I going to live or am I going to die? And you choose to live, then you live. So that was a very poignant turning point in my life, was standing there and, and recognizing that this is, this is really hard. I'm going to cry a lot after this, but I'm going to be able to carry on. And it's because of this woman who I'm saying goodbye to right now, that I can. You know, I think that all of us have those, if I can get through this, I can get through anything moments. Mm-hmm. And and we don't have just one, it seems. Right. It, it, it seems for you, this decade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yes. many, many losses. A lot of practice that decade, yes. 
I'm I'm sorry for that. I'm yeah. sorry such a flood and that and also that you lost so many dear ones and, and your whole you know, essentially your entire immediate family so abruptly in those ways. But it seems like also it wasn't just in their passing, but also in the things that your parents taught you. Can can you tell me a little bit about how they raised you and, and what that was like? Because you grew up in Georgia, even though you live in California now. You grew up in rural Georgia, right? That's right. I grew up in Albany, Georgia. Albany. <laughs> and it was uh, it's in southwest Georgia. It's down near near the Panhandle and over near Alabama in that southwest corner. And Albany has a a um, an HBCU there called Albany State College, and it's where my mother went to college. She was a teacher, and she was the first in her family to go to college. And she literally left left the tobacco fields and the cotton fields to go to college. And so she was, she grew up in the sharecropping. Yes, right. Both my parents did. They grew up in the sharecropping era and families. So my growing up, I like to say it was, I grew up in a house divided by the city limit sign. (laughs) The city limit sign was, Albany city limit sign was right across the street from the house I grew up in on Hazard Drive. And at the end of that block was Albany State College. The rest of the block was people renting houses and raising kids. And it was an amazing community to grow up in. I went to a an elementary school where they trained teachers. And this was all black, an all black universe there in East Albany. And out, when you walked out the front door, you entered my mother's domain, the, the college life and the life of books and learning and all of that. And you ex- exit the back door of that little house and you entered my father's domain where he was a backyard farmer growing sugar cane and kept chickens and had a big, nice big garden going. So those two things, the city and the country, that was how my life was. And I watched my parents mentor and take in college students and so that they could have a home away from home at our house. And so I watched them grow. uh, They taught me through their example how to serve and how to be there for people, for other people. Well, and and I don't want it missed. The name of the road that you're home with? <laughs> Hazard Drive. Hazard Drive. Hazard Drive, yes. It was not hazardous living on Hazard at all. Well, there's something kind of oddly and beautifully poetic about that in, in a in a dark way and, and also in a wonderful way. Mm-hmm. Sort of a, a road out of Hazard for you. Well, yes, yes. And the funny thing is I, I had no idea what the why the street was called Hazard when I was growing up there. I learned many years later that it was a family. The Hazard family were big donors that started Albany State College. Mm. So that's why the, the street got that name. Of course, the college is occupying the entire street now. All of those houses are gone. The house I grew up in is literally a parking lot. And it's called College Drive now. And Albany State is a university instead of a college. So it's it's very interesting to to go back there and stand in the spot where I know the house used to stand and know that not only is the house gone, but all those people, those three people that I grew up in that house with are gone. And but yet I have all of this 
all of this that I still carry, everything I learned from my parents and their voices still in my head. And my sister, who was in many ways like a second mom to me, they are with me always. But there is a sadness that will never go away. And I have learned to, like my mother did and my father did, to learn to walk with the sadness and the joy, one in each hand, balanced to move through life. Wait a minute. I want to, I want to get that picture for a second. <laughs> learn to walk through life with the sadness and the joy, one in each hand. Mm-hmm. That's pretty lovely. <laughs> I really feel that way. You did not grow up a, a rich girl. No. Oh, no. I didn't know it. I didn't know it at the time. Nobody was going around saying, you are living way below the ho- the poverty line over here. Did you know that? Nobody. That's not the way we were raised. We were rich in the things that mattered. And we never wanted for anything. You know, we had everything we needed. But it was much later in my life that I looked back. I think it was after my parents were gone and we found many, many years of um, tax returns that I had a chance as an adult to look back at my parents' life through their tax returns and say, are you kidding me? This is all they made. This is, this is amazing. How, how in the world did they do that? But um, they did. So you brought all of this, the joy and the sadness in each hand. uh, And when the 2020 election came around, tell me, and, and we, we all watched, as you said, you know, it's the, the Ray Charles song, everyone had Georgia on their mind. Oh, yes. <laughs> that moment in the entire country looking at the pivotal election. And I, I'm going to make a confession to you here. I really had such slim hope that both of the Democratic candidate. Oh, yeah. You weren't alone in that. Absolutely. I know. I'm, in, I'm just embarrassed about it because <laughs> I like to think of myself as an optimist, but I'm also a realist, and it, the odds just seemed impossible. Yes. So when you learned of, and in your eyes too, even though you lived now in California, when you learned of the, this runoff election and how that was going to be, what happened for you? I think it was because I was in California that it became very heightened. The experience became heightened because I have several friends. I've been in California now for over 30 years. I have several friends who I am their only connection to Georgia. They've never been there. They have definite ideas about it, but they don't know anything about it other than what a lot of people know about Georgia, that it's not a great place to be necessary, especially socially, politically. So when this happened, when, when all of a sudden Georgia was on everybody's mind, I had friends reaching out to me saying, what, what can we do? I, I'd love to help in Georgia. I'm donating to this and that, but I, I really want to do more. You have some ideas. And I didn't have any ideas at the time. Well, I ended up on a, in a conversation with a, a friend in Texas who had some Uh, political experience, doing campaigning and stuff. And we ended up in a conversation about, well, what, what can we do? And I told her about my group of friends and she had some experience with runoffs, which is something, an animal that not a lot of people really understood before 2020. And she said, if you 
got a group of folks that want to jump on a Zoom, I'm happy to explain how a runoff works and just, you know, enlighten people and maybe we can figure something out. So but before we ended that conversation, Judy Hall and I, she in Texas, me here in California, we had come up with this idea to, to form this little group and call it the Peach Corps. I think it happened on the call. <laughs> and it, it was just too perfect. I mean, the Peach Corps, we were both laughing about it. And then I organized the Zoom and she showed up and did the thing. And before we knew it, we had this little movement going and people were inviting other friends to join. We decided to do phone calls and postcards. Those, those were the two main things, the main ways we were going to be working. And everybody was interested in grassroots. They wanted to do something really deep and meaningful. So we connected with one of the Democratic committees in Lee County, Georgia, which is just north of where I grew up, a very tiny uh, band of Democrats in a very, very red county. The woman that is the chairman of that committee works for the sheriff, <laughs> works for the Trumper sheriff in Lee County. So she she was an amazing woman, though, and she, she was very happy that I found her and opened her arms to us and helped us get the, the mailing lists that we needed. And we just band together and had quite an impact. We ended up with sending out 5,000 postcards, making 3,000 calls. Wait, let's do the math here, though. 5,000 <laughs> postcards and 3,000 yeah. calls to a, a region that has a population of... Oh, let's see. Well, so, it was southwest Georgia. So um, oh, you're going to put me on the spot here. I'm not even sure what the population, the total population. Not a lot. <laughs> not a lot. And and you know what was what was really important about it, Betsy, was that because we were working so closely with the grassroots organization that gave us access to these mailing lists that, you know, the postcard to voters folks were not, they were not sending postcards to these folks. These were people that are pretty much forgotten. Nobody's knocking on their doors anymore. Nobody's calling them necessarily. They're disenfranchised in a huge way. So we were, we were targeting that population of folk. Mm. And it made a difference. Three four largely ignored groups. So in southeast Georgia. Southwest. Excuse me, southwest Georgia. Mm -hmm. In southwest Georgia, this was not a high-density population where they could get a lot of bang for the buck. Right, exactly. So they ignored them. But that was your target. That was our target. And because Judy, Judy Hall had the experience for figuring out, like, what's the guy's name? You helped me with this before. Kornacki? Kornacki. Yes, she became, she called it, she jokingly called herself Judy Kornacki because she, she had charts, you know, she had stats on what we did mm. so that she could show us how we impacted Southwest Georgia. And it was quite impressive. In the end, we had about 235 people that were part of Anita's Peach Corps because friends brought in friends, brought in friends, brought in family. And we were connected mostly in Georgia, uh, Texas, Georgia, California, but also in Pennsylvania and New York. We had people all over the country that were working. And I was putting together postcard kits and sending them out to folks. And, in the middle of a pandemic. In the middle of a pandemic. And it was, but it was such good work. And we, it, it was just carrying us with it. 
we were just planning, we were building that airplane as it ran down the taxi down the, <laughs> down the uh, tarmac because we didn't know what we were doing really, just going with the energy of it and, and keeping up, trying to keep up with the flow of, of the action. It was just, it was pretty amazing, pretty incredible. And then we won, it was, it was just amazing. We had a big Zoom party to celebrate and people got on Zoom and just were, it was a beautiful time. Mm. And let's not forget, of course, that one of those candidates does not have a six-year term. That's right. Warnock, we've got to get him back in there. So, so it's, it isn't over. It isn't over. And I have Peach Corps people getting in touch with me now saying, Anita, what are we getting ready to do? What are we going to do? So we're getting ready to get back on this, get back up on that horse and figure it out. Well, Anita, I'm, I'm connecting dots here because as you speak, I'm thinking about standing at your mother's bedside, thinking this is as hard as it gets, looking at Southwest Georgia and thinking this is an area nobody usually pays attention to, but somehow in you, finding both in yourself and in this camaraderie of other people hope during for hopelessness, I guess. Hmm. Yeah. You know, the, the sort of, and, and you told me a little story about a centipede. Oh <laughs> was, yeah. I was thinking about that just now too. When you and I were talking, cause I asked you, you know, the odds were so against that. How in the world did you get over? And you told me about the centipede. I remember hearing this, Someone, maybe it was the postmaster general a long, long time ago talking about the postal service and how, how it works. Somebody was asking him and I never forgot it because he said, well, you, you can't have legs number and with the centipede. You can't have legs number one and two or three and four thinking about what legs number 98 and 99 are doing or you'll just shut down. You just have to keep moving. So that I have always kind of looked at that analogy for getting through something where the odds are tough or you don't know how you're going to do it. Because if you think too hard about it, you'll stop. You'll just stop in your tracks and you won't get anything done. And that really does explain what we did with the Peach Corps. We just kept moving and kept moving and, and not really paying attention to too much of the news and the, the, the doom and gloom or just, just do, just keep moving. And that, that's how we got through it. Thank you for the work that you and the Peach Corps and other grassroots organizations, Indivisible, Stacey Abrams, all these organizations that got together to make the impossible happen. And, uh, you know, whether we were foot number one and two or foot 97 <laughs> and 98, um, it took all hundred of those little legs working. And, and I'm so grateful that you were part of that and turning those rural sections of Georgia at that time in that particular election, in that with those two candidates yeah. has made enormous difference. And I'm, I'm just so grateful for that. So what I want to end just a little bit, can you tell me just a bit about your novel? Because I know that you just secured an agent, which if you're not a writer, I'm going to tell you out there, when you have an agent that says yes to your book, it's a big deal. It's a big moment. Big <laughs> so moment. Tell me, this just happened for you. And tell me it's called Peach Seed Monkey. That's the title right now. Yes, the title is Peach Seed Monkey. I've been working on this book for 14 years, and that is no lie. Just and very much the centipede. Just keep going. If anything applies, it applies to writing a novel and trying to get it published. But it's set in my hometown, 
of Albany, Georgia, and it centers around three men, actually four men in, the, in this family. And the peach seed monkey is very central to the story because it's a talisman that the men in the family carve and pass on to the from generation to generation. And it's a, it's a tradition that goes back to slavery for the Duke's family, this fictional family in my story. And I'm very thrilled that I just on Easter Sunday signed with an agent in New York, Steve Ross. And he, in fact, just yesterday, he sent me my editorial notes to, um, to move on to the next phase so we can, as he said, dress the story in its Sunday best so we can attract a publisher. So oh, I like that. I don't you, isn't that a good way to put it? Dress it in its Sunday best. So I, I'm very fortunate to have Steve to hand off this part of the job to him because he is, he's been in the industry for 30 years. He really knows his stuff. And I'm just so happy and lucky. The writing process is another kind of centipede. It certainly is. <laughs> and it takes a long time. And then, then the writing and editing process, and then there's the publishing and marketing process. It's, it's a hundred little centipedes. It is un- unbelievable. In every single step of that. And when I heard you and first met you by phone and I got so excited, I went right on to my <laughs> independent bookstore site and wanted to order your oh book. Oh, my and goodness. It out yet. So you already have one sold. Okay. <laughs> I will tell Steve that. And thank you, Betsy. I really appreciate your support and all the kind words. And for this interview, it was really great. to. I can't believe it went so fast. I know. Well, we, we will likely need to talk again. And, I would uh, like that. Work. I'm, I'm so touched that you would bring your story of your loss to your story of determination and perseverance. Thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. It's been a half hour since I finished my conversation with Anita Gale Jones during which time the verdict in the Derek Chauvin case came down. Guilty, guilty, and guilty. I find that I'm trembling thinking about it. And so amazed. It's not unrelated to my conversation with Anita. I watched, as many of us all did, the prosecution during this case having to build it. And I'm thinking about that little centipede. I'm thinking about how they had to do one little thing at a time, building, 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 and not letting hopelessness stop them, not letting the history of how so many verdicts of this kind have gone the other way with just as much or more evidence It's just kind of amazing to me that I got to speak with Anita specifically on this day, at this moment in history. A woman who grew up poor without knowing it, grew up with parents that demonstrated character and perseverance. And even during the time of losing her family, was still able to connect to hope, hope. As Emily Dickinson said, hope is that thing with feathers that perches on the soul and sings the tune without the words 
and never stops at all. Hope. That's the extra room for today. It's a big one. <laughs> it's a really big one. I want to mention one other thing about Anita's work, and that is that she and her husband, with the wrongful death suit, I guess, settlement that they received because of her sister's airplane crash, they didn't just sit on that money. They <laughs> they started a foundation, and they give scholarships to young black students in southwest Georgia and in the San Francisco Bay Area. You can find out more information if you want to contribute to that fund that helps to fund students finding their way to college. It's www.gaines, that's G-A-I-N-E-S hyphen jones.org. And that's a way to contribute to just a little bit more hope on this day and every day. Thanks so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. Wherever you are, whatever you have gone through, whatever you're worried about, I hope that you are finding your way to bloom.